Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. It doesn't matter where churches are on the theological and political spectrum. All churches are interested in and concerned about youth. Parents, of course, desire their children to share their approach to life, and if their faith means something special to them, parents want their children to share in it as well. A church's interest in youth is multifaceted. Because churches exist based on the conviction that belief in Jesus Christ is of ultimate meaning, churches want all people to share in that experience, including young people. Most churches also see themselves as organizations of caring and compassion, which means that they have an interest in ministering to the needs of anyone with whom they come into contact and with whom they have a relationship. Full disclosure also means acknowledging a pragmatic and necessarily self-serving reality. Churches in the United States are voluntary organizations, which means that if they are going to continue to exist, they need to always have new people coming into the membership. The most promising prospects are young people. Related to that, It's also true that young people and young adults are the most open to receiving the faith. After a certain age, people are unlikely to embrace a faith or to change from one faith to another. But the context in which young people grow up constantly changes, and usually that involves some sort of new technology When you add to the situation the developmental needs young people have to distinguish themselves from their parents and to establish their own identity, the dynamics of youth and young adult ministry is constantly in process. So in this episode, we are going to explore what's going on with young people today in general and by implication what that means for young people that are Christians. My guest for this episode is Laura Addis. Laura has been involved in youth ministry since 2000 in both staff and volunteer roles. She currently serves as the ministry associate with students at First Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina, as the director of Programs for Life in Trinity Ministry, and as a consultant for ministry architects. She regularly writes for various youth magazines, online sites, and curriculum publishers. Because of her extensive experience, we are going to lean into Laura's wisdom and insight about what's going on with young people in our context today. Well, welcome, Laura. Thank you for being with me today. Thanks so much, David. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, well, why don't we start by letting you kind of tell your own spiritual journey? Uh, especially as that has led you into your interest in youth work and the work you're doing now. Sure. Uh, I grew up in South Louisiana, uh, and what I would say was a, you know, culturally Christian home. We went to church. Um, so it's a good thing to do and it's what you do in the South. Um, I have an older brother who got into some trouble in high school as some high schoolers do. Um, and so we started going to church a good bit more, uh, around that time, um, and ended up at, Um, A great church with a really excellent youth ministry when I was in middle school. Um, So uh, I got pretty involved there uh, kind of as a as a high schooler. Um, And uh, the youth pastor there said, so glad you're glad to be around the church. Why don't you lead the middle school girls Bible study? So by my junior and senior year of high school, I was uh, leading a Bible study for younger students. and I think that was the my introduction into youth ministry, and I haven't really ever been able to shake it. So, um, you know, I grew up in Baton Rouge, and when you grow up in Baton Rouge, you go to LSU. Uh, that's what you do. So that's what I did. Um, so I went to LSU and so was able to stay connected with my home church, um, went on staff and served um, as a middle school youth director at that church um, all through my college years, which... Um, I think was really formative for me. That was uh, my, that was my my job, and it you know paid my college bills, but also really my community. We had a great crew of college um, staff and volunteers that really cared for 
um, the middle school and high school youth at our church. And so that's where I spent a lot of time. And then even those were my buddies that I was hanging out with um, outside of work. And so it was a really great experience to get to be a part of of that community uh, and to have a, a ministry mindset um, really kind of from an early from an early age on. Um, so it really felt like after college um, that I wanted to stay in ministry. Um, we joke in my family, I, I told my mom as I was graduating, mom, I really think I'd like to do youth ministry long term. And she said, oh, Laura, you don't play the guitar. <laughs> That's true. It's true. I don't. And it would be really helpful if I did. But, you know, we've we've figured a way through uh, these years. So um, I served a church, a big, big, big church in Dallas, Texas, um, for most of my 20s. Um, started with fifth and sixth grade ministry there, had about uh, 150 fifth and sixth graders in our ministry. And so um, really felt like it learned uh, real pastoral care there. Um, you know, that that many kids, it's almost like its own small church when you start to get to know their families and parents and siblings and grandparents. And um, so it was a really lovely place. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways that church raised me, um, parents in that youth ministry that would have me in their homes to eat dinner, play basketball with their kids, but then also to get to to watch lots of of faithful families kind of working out their faith um, and seeing the ways that they grew. So um, did that for a number of years and then uh, oversaw fifth through eighth grade and then oversaw uh, fifth through 12th grade and served that staff in an interim role, kind of overseeing all of the youth ministry staff um, for a year or two. Uh, so that was really great. Um, ended up in seminary in the middle there. Uh, and then after, after that, felt like wasn't sure what the next step was. So did a little more uh, seminary work out at Fuller Seminary in California. Um, took some doctoral classes uh, in Christian spirituality. And that, um, you know, really blew my mind in a lot of ways. I had um, been raised and served in um, pretty conservative evangelical churches that um, had good did a good, good job of teaching me a couple of ways of connecting with God and a couple of ways of reading scriptures and praying um, and to do classwork uh, and to talk uh, historically about ways that Christians have connected with God, ways of prayer that I didn't know of, spiritual practices and authors that I had never even heard of um, was a really, uh, really great thing kind of at, at the end of my 20s, which led me uh, to move to Kansas City. I worked um, with a youth ministry organization in Kansas City called uh, Youth Front that's doing really great contemplative practices with middle school and high school students. So, you know, our middle school camp, we um, prayed the hours with with students a couple times a day and and did some, some neat, really innovative um, contemplative spirituality work that they're doing there and served a small, not small-ish to me at that point, Presbyterian church uh, where I met my husband, who was the organist and I was a youth pastor and we had a little church romance um, and uh, then moved around a little bit. Um, and in the last six years or so, we've been in Asheville, North Carolina. We came there um, as my husband uh, serves that church as the organist. And I have had um, really the privilege of, of getting to be involved in the youth ministry and primarily a volunteer role the last um, five or six years. We have a phenomenal staff at our church, our uh, minister with students, uh, I think, is one of the most gifted in the country. And so it's been really great to um, get to be under his leadership and support the ministry that he's doing um, here uh, with youth and families. Um, and then in the last uh, month or so, I've gotten to come on staff myself uh, and serve um, part time as a ministry associate with students. So I don't know. I think you asked about my journey and I turned that into resume, which uh, <laughs> is maybe God. my maybe more of my inclination than it should be. So sorry about that. Maybe I didn't answer your question right, but I just got to talking. So, well, no, your spirituality is a part of that journey. <laughs> it, and, is. Uh, it was absolutely. You can't help but uh, grow <laughs> when you're in the midst of ministry, when you're on mm -hmm. the front lines in different mm -hmm. ways. So, yeah. 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 Well, so tell us about young people now. I mean, it kind of changes over time. It does. And, and, uh, you know, I, in, in my own experience, uh, cause I was pastor at first Baptist black mountain for nearly 13 years from mm -hmm. 2000 until 2013. And, 
and you know saw uh that that the experience of youth when i was there was different from uh the 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 nature of the kids i had when i taught at palm beach atlantic college mm -hmm. uh, and and so what's going on now yeah. with young people young people are just the best aren't they i think they're just the greatest yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah they really are they were i mean for really they really are and especially when you take it from young people in the world just to like let's look at these sweet faces of these human beings right before you you know really great um I, you know i think it is interesting even in in knowing that i was going to be talking with you i think vocationally um i haven't been vocationally involved in youth ministry you know i've been a volunteer and going on retreats and things but when i have been serving churches i think i've been more aware of feeling the the pressure to follow generational trends and what do we learn about millennials and what's the Pew Institute saying these days, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, so I, I do feel like I'm a little behind the times uh, or have maybe a little catch up work to do to get to say um, wh what's true about um, this Gen Z, you know, generation that we've got in front of us. But if you'll if you'll let me just tell you anecdotally what I think I'm seeing, and then we can talk someday about if the research agrees with me. But um, I find young people these days, high school students, college students, middle schoolers to some degree, uh, to be so much more aware of and involved in the world around them than I remember being at that age or that I think previous generations have been. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Surely uh, the internet uh, and social media and a 24 hour news cycle um, probably uh, increases the opportunity for young people to, to know or care about um, geopolitical issues or you know the things that are happening around the world, but uh, I see them engaged with not just the people right around them, not just their nuclear families and the buddies that they talk with a good bit, but aware of what's happening in the larger world. Uh, and, and there seems to be a sense of agency uh, that I find to be really lovely with young people that um, there's a, at least with the students I'm spending time with um, right now, a sense that their voice matters and that, that, that injustices that they see in the world that they can be a part of bringing the kingdom to earth, um, which is a really lovely uh, and encouraging and sometimes a little intimidating place to be, uh, to know that youth are are looking um, to bring about good change in the world and they're not interested in, in just sitting back and receiving, but they want to be actively involved. That's what, I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, well, that's, that's a, that's a helpful insight. Yeah. On what's going on. I had a, a conversation with a, a high school student yesterday, last night when we were uh, getting ready, you know, hanging out before a youth group got started. And um, she's going to do, you know, she's an active part of our congregation and part of our student leadership team. And so she's going to um, help do some leadership stuff next month. And we were talking about what she has bandwidth to help with and what she needs to, you know, where she is in school and all those things. And she said, well, I also need to write a letter to my principal. So, of course, you know, the kids are, ooh, you in trouble, you know, what's the principal want? And she said, uh, she said, no, I, I've been really thinking about, you know, at graduation, um, kids with honors get those cords that they get to wear around their neck. Um, and if you're in the National Honor Society, usually you get to wear cords. And she goes to a, a school that is um, a little bit outside of, of Asheville. You know, it's kind of, it's not rural, but, you know, it's a little bit, a little bit outside of the city. And she said, I think, I think it's good that kids get um, cords for National Honor Society, but also we have kids that are involved in FFA that get national recognition, and I think they should get to wear cords too. If you've been nationally recognized, you should get to wear that. And she said, and we have kids in our drama department that that have won national awards, so why aren't we recognizing their achievement in the things that they're good at and care about? And so I just thought it's it was. Um, a little breathtaking for me, I think, for her to, she, she wasn't working on her own behalf. She's not a senior. She's not graduating anytime soon. She's not involved in the FFA. But for her to say, 
I think people are gifted in lots of different ways. And the school can be a part of recognizing and affirming lots of different giftedness. And so I'm going to respectfully write a letter to my principal to advocate on behalf of other people. I thought, man, that's I don't think I was doing that as a, you know, sophomore. Yeah, <laughs> attention. And if I was, I probably would have just been advocating for myself if we're being honest. And if I was advocating, I don't I don't know that it would have really moved me to action to say, I'm gonna write the letter, I'm gonna ask a trusted adult to read over it, make sure it's appropriate. And so it's that kind of stuff that I see in this generation that is um it, so encouraging to me. Well, it seems like, I mean, because, you know, one of the concerns each parent, each generation of parents has is with with what the new technology is doing mm-hmm. to their child. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. back when radio first came in, right. it was, parents were concerned about the kids listening to radio all day and yep. advent of television, you know, and now, like I say, the Internet. But but cell phones mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. uh, seem to have changed the game. Yep. Yep. Uh, in so many ways with young yep. people and how they interact and interrelate. Uh, yep. Kind of talk about that experience uh, for us. I think, you know, I think change the game is is the only way you can talk about it. I don't know that there's anything else that's changed how how young people interact, but then also how adults, uh, you know, just how all human people are interacting lately. Um it's interesting to me to think that we're still relatively uh, new into an internet generation or into cell phones in terms of cell phones that have access to the internet and have access to social media all the time. Um, it makes me a little nervous that we haven't had the time to do any sort of longitudinal studies to say, how does this change a young person's forming sense of identity? Or, you know, if we talk about the work of, of adolescents as 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 creating identity and creating autonomy. Those are kind of the two main things they're working on. How how does knowing where your friends are and what your friends are doing and whether or not you were invited and um, how does that change who you are? Um, You know, it's been interesting to to hear from our students. Um, You know, I I don't think the COVID-19 pandemic is anywhere near over in September of 2021, but in a lot of ways, it's it's back to life a little bit normal for them, more normal than it than it has been. Um, and so to to hear from them now that they're back in school about the impact of um, being socially isolated from their friends um, or from their peers in this last year, I, I've been a little surprised to hear that come up in a couple of different ways from students because I think I would have expected because of cell phones and because of technology for them to say, I could hop on Zoom and have a homework group with my friends, or I could text my buddy and we could have a conversation. So um, that's been surprising to me to hear them say how glad they are to be back in person, how hard it was to be only virtual, um, not not just from the academic part of it. You know, we are hearing from them. I don't feel like I learned as much last year. I, you know, I want to learn from a teacher in person, but even that those social networks, um, the in-person things uh, are are starkly contrasted to them from those those virtual things just because of this pandemic experience. So, um, you know, I think I think cell phones have changed the game in so many ways. I think social media in particular has changed the game for a young person's experience of growing up today. Um, I think I personally am always one that shies away from saying anything is all good or all bad. You know, there's two sides to anything and cell phones bring gifts of communication in a, in a more global world where kids have access to, to people and conversations happening all over the world. Um, but I, I think, I think we, we would do well. We, those of us who love young people, we are society at general, um, we would do well to keep paying attention to um, what are the what are the harms or where are the problems? Um, where is the disconnectedness that might come because of of technology or or, or cell phones? Well, I know that um, anytime there's any kind of event uh, that happens uh, randomly, you know, at the spur of the moment, a fight in school or they mm-hmm. see something 
uh, out come the phones and they record it and boom, it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, things go viral. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about that, that kind of impact, what, what that is like. Yeah. You know, this is a, um, this is maybe a real surface level example. And I think it points to a larger issue, but um, I just had a conversation with a couple of good friends of mine from college um, talking about uh, how when we were in high school and early college, if we had special events, if we we're going to prom or homecoming or dance or something like that, you know, you would maybe buy a dress, but maybe you just check with your friends and see who had a dress in your size that you could just borrow. Cause you're just going to wear it for one night and you know, but there's so much more um, instantaneous record of what happened uh, on social media and in technology today that that we don't see kids often um, borrowing dresses, rewearing clothes, right? Because there is, you know, I've, I've heard not many of our students, but some students say there's that pressure that everything that I've done, anybody can go back and look at that. And so I think like, gosh, the stupid things I said and did in high school, if there were pictures of those up on the internet or videos, I think, thank God I was alive and growing into myself before the time that anybody could grab a phone and take a video. Anybody could put it up on the internet and it's there for a while. So it's not necessarily about who doesn't want to wear the same dress twice in a row, you know, to be recorded on that. But the sense of um, stuff does get videos do get taken in the moment and posted on the internet and then they don't ever come back down. And so uh, I think um, it can be a beautiful thing in terms of um, calling injustices out and proving, you know, giving as much as there can be a, a, a third party view of an event that's happening. But I think it is another level of added pressure to youth to recognize that, um, any goofy picture they take might show up on somebody else's feed and then it's just out there or any dumb thing that they say as a, as a young person doesn't necessarily go away as they grow up and mature and learn and do better. Um, but it's just out there. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. It'd be an interesting question to ask middle schoolers or high schoolers today, if that's a, if that's an ex- explicit pressure that they feel, or if that's sort of an implicit thing that has always been true in their lives, that 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 just is a difference between you and I getting to know that if you do something crazy, somebody could take a picture or a video, and now it's up on the internet. Because um, it's not a that's not a a thing that's unique to youth. You know, they're not the only ones that get their phones out and take pictures of big events or videos. Um, but they're the only ones that are working through the sense of who am I and determining how am I in the world. Um, you know, as adults, I feel like so much of that's a little more, a little more formed in who we are and how we act in the world. So I don't know if that's a good answer or not. Hope so. Well, I know that we're just scratching the surface of this kind of thing. <laughs> we just experience it. And so yeah. exploring the ideas, uh, are part of that process. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, in a similar way, you talked about their activists. Um, not only does the social media, you know, instant recording of events, but, but kids, um, have virtual diaries. They, mm-hmm. uh, you know, influencers, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, they're adult influencers, but, but young people are, are posting, uh, thoughts and, and, uh, you know, trying to do impact the world in different ways through yeah. kind of diary and kind of things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, I was just, I can't remember who it was. I was just talking with somebody the other day about what a unique place middle schoolers are in kind of, and high schoolers in between that very black and white thinking of childhood. This is yes. And this is no. And as they're developing that abstract thinking and the ability to, to think critically really well for themselves, um, you know, I, there's a lot of conversation about the damage that comes from just looking at someone's curated highlight reel of um, here's my here's my two week vacation in a 30 second video that just shows all the really beautiful things that happen. And, you know, here's me swimming in a in a gorgeous lagoon that doesn't show the six hour flight delay that we had. And then the kid that cried behind us on the plane, you know, those sorts of things. And so setting an expectation of 
extraordinary events or unrealistic beauty or, you know, activism that you chant one thing and then the world changes because we're, we're often shown uh, time-lapsed highlight reels, you know, that, that we would hope that as an adult with, with great critical thinking skills and abstract thinking abilities as our prefrontal cortexes are totally formed, we can take a step back and say, ah, that's a lovely 20 second video of your of your vacation, but I know that when I go on vacation, I am gonna be thinking about the baby crying in the room next door to me or how much this all-inclusive resort is costing, you know, those sorts of things that that aren't always necessarily true for youth. And so I worry some about those unrealistic expectations that are getting set as norms as opposed to just the, the fun pieces of life. So kind of that influencer life that you think this isn't, that's not, that's not, that's not Tuesday for most people. You know, most people aren't super glamorous all the time. And so how are we helping young people differentiate between the beautiful highlight reels that they see on on what used to be TV, but is now often YouTube or Instagram or TikTok, one of those platforms um, into, into more realistic understanding of, of what to expect from life. So. Well, I know that we're having um, a greater increase in plurality. Mm-hmm. Um, throughout the nation. I mean, it used to be that, that if you went to a small town, uh, it was 99% white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even in those small towns anymore, uh, that's no longer true. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, you know, other cultures, folks from other cultures are moving in. Uh, you know, I was, I was surprised, uh, you know, to learn that when I first came, uh, to Asheville, that the the second largest ethnicity uh, was Moldovan, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, so you know that kind of thing is happening. Uh, so how are younger people responding to this? How do you think that uh, this this kind of multiplicity of cultures mm-hmm. is right? And especially because so much of what's happening in politics uh, has been concerned about that. You know, mm-hmm. the last election. Uh, I mean, when Trump was elected, it was build the wall and, you know, that kind of thing. So what's going on with young people relating to Yeah, you know, it's interesting to to think about, uh, you know, even in our conversation, you and I are are contrasting what has been with what is. And for 15 or 16-year-olds, they don't have a frame of reference for what has been. You know, they've got, you know, the youth in our youth group now, by and large, uh, gosh, almost, I guess everybody, at least in our middle school and high school youth group was born after 2002 or so, you know, so they, that frame of reference of like a 1950s kind of Mayberry or before there was a growing awareness and encouragement, maybe in some ways of diversity of multiculturals and multi-ethnic, multiracial, growth in America, I think that's just the water that they've always swum in. And so it's maybe not a, I think the the difference maybe that they're recognizing is the anxiety or tension or excitement of our generations, older generations that would say, um, this is different than what it used to be, or it's different than what I grew up with, or it's different than what my parents or grandparents grew up with. I think our young people would say, um this is what has been in their lifetime you know they're um i think even yeah when we talk about advertising dollars that used to be primarily heterosexual families white people models you know that that was where advertising money went and there are more and more representations of diverse on every level families and models and different people that are representing america that i think our youth are just saying that's what that's what it's been when i've been old enough to really be paying attention so it i'm not i wonder for them um uh, you know as we go forward and as they live more into this experience of um you know, at least the the youth that I'm spending a lot of time with, which, you know, they lead pretty politically progressive, not super, but, you know, that's probably the way that they all lean to say, we we want to live in a world that is inclusive and welcoming to all people, 
be and we're not interested in political systems that divide or exclude or discriminate. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, as their generation gets older and starts to have voting power, uh, you know, what, where, how does that change? How does that change governmental systems? And how much of that is just my insular opinion based on the group of youth that I spend a lot of time with, you know, my, I'm, I don't know how much of that is just my own personal bias in there too, with the kids that I'm spending good time with. Well, I know the, um, the political divide factors into this, uh, mm -hmm. that, that churches aren't just theologically conservative, they're politically conservative or politically liberal. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when Trump was elected, uh, there was a resurgence or a, or a kind of an emboldening mm -hmm. uh, of uh, more uh, racist views in, in a lot of ways, uh, more divisive views. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's part of why I was wondering about, you know, how, how young people not only are hindering the multiculturalism that they're experiencing, but uh, also this political, um, issue within our country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just heard from, a uh, I was talking with a, a mom of a youth and I know the mom pretty well. They're not members of our community. I kind of am connected with them through a different uh, way, but, but she said, I think she's got a maybe ninth or 10th grade daughter, you know, early high school. Um, and they live in a pretty small town in Tennessee. And so we were talking about what's their experience of COVID been like and masking or not masking and vaccine and not masking, vaccine, all those sorts of things, which are sort of about COVID, but then I've also become really politicized and are sort of about where you come down on the the right side or the left side. And she said her daughter has started saying at work at school. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I want to talk politics about you with you because I think you're just telling me what your parents told you. And I think what I'm saying is just what my parents told me. And so, you know, it was like this 14, 15 year olds way of trying to say, I don't know what I think yet. I think what I think might be separate from just what my parents have told me. I'm not really sure how it's different yet. And I still need to do some of that autonomy agency work for myself. So I'm not interested in a conversation with a peer until I feel like they've done that work too. And we can be talking instead of just acting as proxies for, you know, what our parents have told us or what our communities of faith or political, you know, political associations have told us to believe. So it's an interesting time, I think, to be um, a young person trying to figure out who are you and what what do you believe for yourself? What faith wise, politics wise, you know, all those different spheres as they're coming into that. What is my identity uh, and how is it the same intentionally as the people that I love and influence me and where might I be different and how can I differentiate myself there somehow. Well, almost across the board, all of the uh, uh, data finders, you know, uh, have said that Christianity is in decline. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that uh, and that with the uh, increase in uh, multiplicity of, of cultures that are coming in, uh, immigration, uh, there are, are fewer students that have any concept or experience with Christianity, mm -hmm. uh, and and come from different uh, cultures that have different spiritualities, different. Mm -hmm. things. Uh, how's that interplaying with kids? Uh, and especially, you know, when you think of it as a church, uh, how do you approach ministry mm -hmm. uh, in relation mm -hmm. to this kind of thing? It's a good question. It's a good question. It's a little tricky. Um, I think I think a couple of things about that. Uh, I have an extraordinary amount of respect for the people who are doing good social science research, and I don't have any experience doing that, and I sure don't have any business telling anybody how to run their surveys or run their questions, right? So I don't want, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with the findings that they have found. They seem like you said to be pretty clear across the board that no matter who's asking questions, everybody's ending up with the same types of answers. Um, 
It's interesting to me, a question I have is, you know, if we say older generations are not, you know, there, there's a, a, a decrease, a decline of people um, connecting with or associating themselves with the Christian faith. Um, I, I wonder then, how are we defining that? And how was that defined for these generations? I, part of me just wants to say like, I don't know who has an encounter with the living God and doesn't come out of that changed. So what, what faith are we holding up as, as the standard? You know, I think so often we look, that's why I'm, so I'm taking so many pauses. I don't want to be disrespectful to the beautiful work that faithful saints did in Christian congregations across our country. And I guess would be across the world. And when we look at pictures from the 1950s and 1960s of, of Sunday school classes, you know, there's more people than there are seats and every church in America was adding a Christian ed wing so that we could get people into the door. Um, I do have questions about like what ha what happened with that and were we I use the word we liberally as I wasn't there and so who who am I you know to judge or ask but what did that look like and when we're talking about people not associating with the Christian faith today in the rise of people who are not connecting with spirituality um, on any level or not choosing to make corporate worship or church attendance a, a priority in their weekly schedule or in their life at large um i i think of i think self-reflection that of the church is the answer to say um the christ that we find in the gospels is extraordinary and challenging and I find to be deeply problematic sometimes and incredibly compelling. Uh, and so um, I don't want to be dismissive of any way. Of course, I think corporate worship is incredibly important. I think the programs that the church has historically run and continues to run are incredibly important. Um, but is there an opportunity for the institution to look internally and say, um, are there are there new ways to tell the old stories and new ways um, to engage with the timeless truths that we know to be true about who the triune God is and what the work of Christ is and how the Holy Spirit moves in the world today? Um, are, are we trying something new? Are we interested in new conversations or are we just saying the things that we've always done have always worked and so you can join us or not but we're going to keep doing this i'm not, i'm i'm not at all advocating for the gospel to change and not at all trying to say that that faithful lovely beautiful ministry hasn't happened throughout the centuries in the american church but um i don't know well what about then how you, how you're thinking about uh what you're going to do uh, in yep. youth ministry, what you have been doing, yeah, uh, youth ministry, yeah. Uh, you know, what are the kids experiencing when they uh, are in school uh, mm -hmm. and are, are learning of alternative spiritualities, and mm -hmm. and bring that back to say this seems compelling to me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think one of the things that the youth minister on staff that I serve with and I find ourselves asking over and over, particularly as we're rethinking through youth ministry, you know, as we all pause for the pandemic, there's a sense that we can rethink some things and we can try some new stuff. And the question we keep coming back to is what is it that if we, that if the church doesn't do or offer or say or ask students that no one else will? So what is, what's the church's unique role in the life of a youth to continue to say, how's your soul and how's your heart? How's your connection with God? What's bringing you joy in life these days and what's 
breaking your heart and how are you working for justice and where are you finding Christ on the margins? So, you know, we're, um, we've got a, a group of primarily high school students this year that have self-selected into our student leadership team. We've got about 20 um, and uh, we're talking a lot this semester about the intersections of faith and justice. You know, what? how does our faith compel us to work for justice? Can justice be truly just without an understanding of faith? How is the script, you know, where do we find these in the scriptures and the stories of how Christians have pursued faith? And so we've got a, a meeting coming up Sunday afternoon. And so we're kind of talking through what are we going to, you know, what are we going to talk about and how's this going to go? And, um, you know, we'd come up with a couple object lessons and a field trip that they're going to go on and some homework they're going to do and some poetry that they're going to engage in. Um, and we even had a conversation. What what scripture piece are we how are we going to connect this to the scriptures? Because without that, it feels like school, it feels like social studies or a creative writing project. And so to say, uh, as ministers of the gospels on behalf of a local congregation, our role is to continue to ask students who engage in the ministry or who identify as Christians, um, how is your faith impacting every aspect of your life? What's your prayer life like? And how's your heart? And, you know, what are you angry about your parents? And what what does the scriptures have to say about that? Um, I think that feels really important. Um, those those open ended questions um, as as the adult to be the one to ask the question and to allow space for the conversation. Um, but then but then to be ready to receive um, and to answer or hold their questions that come back just as well. Let's go back to the pandemic. Okay. Um, right. You you know you talked about that sense of of, of isolation and then a, little bit, a little bit of your surprise that um, you thought it wouldn't have impacted them as much as you it actually did. Yeah. Because of the capacity to to relate uh, through uh, social media and cell phones and those mm -hmm. kind of things. Um, but develop that a little more about what, what has been their experience, uh, because this has been odd for us all. I mean, no you know, yeah, there's, it's not just the kids, the adults have never gone through anything like this either. No kidding. Uh, but uh, what are you finding with the kids? Uh, you know, even this summer is interesting. We um, went back to summer camp this summer, you know, skipped summer camp in 2020 and, and went back this summer you know, with masks and distancing, a lot of outdoor time, all those things. And it was great. It was so good um, to be back together in the camp that our student ministry goes to is um, like a lot held on the campus of a, a college campus. And so usually it's two kids in dorm room together, you know, and we had the opportunity this year to allow kids to, with their parents, either decide that they were going to be in a little pod, you know, with a buddy and be in a dorm room together or, if they felt more comfortable to have a room to themselves. And some, we had some kids that did both, some kids that were excited to be, you know, roommate with their best friend. And some kids that said, no, for, you know, my family's gonna be more comfortable if I'm in a room by myself or whatever. And um, so I was hanging out with one of our older students one night, you know, you know, everybody's getting ready for bed and we're just hanging out at the end of camp, end of a night at camp. and she was in a room by herself. And so I said something about, well, you know, I'm glad we had space that you could be in a room. And she said, yeah, it's less about um, COVID or, or less about the, the medical or science things for me. She said, she's an only child. And she said, I've spent so much time by myself the last year and a half or so, I guess at that point, she said, I was already a little anxious about being around people all day, every day at camp. And I felt like I would probably need some space, a room of my own that I could go and close the door and just be quiet and be alone again. And it was so fascinating for me to hear her talk about that. She's one that I, um, I think she would say, I would say is very extroverted and add a lot of group activities and really involved in her school and her church and music, you know, all those sorts of things. But for her to say this, this season of isolation and aloneness largely in my house you know she's got great parents but no siblings and so for her to say this amount of peer contact of uh, you know kind of all day every day at camp together um i, I was proud of her of that kind of preemptive self-reflection to say i think i probably need a room 
by myself, you know, before so that I can have some space as we call kind of all integrate back into it. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, we were on a camping trip with our youth and talking to some students who were starting their senior year, um, you know, back in person in class this year. And a couple of them said um, they were the most, you know, not all that worried about academic classes. They felt like they could handle the workloads that they had, but that they were anxious about the social aspect again. They said, I feel like I've been so out of the loop. It's been a year and a half since I've had to figure out where to sit in the lunchroom or who I'm friends with in each classroom, but kind of that reintegrating back into um, a normal sense of life. Um, I, and then even a, a student yesterday, last, last night, who said um, how difficult the pandemic had been um, alone um, and that she, she didn't feel like herself during that time. And so what work she had done this summer um, she talked about helping get out of her funk um, and what she had done on behalf of that. So I think, um, you know, I, I think you're right. It's It's been so hard for all of us and so new for all of us and to walk through this unknown, surprising new thing together that nobody has any control over or any say in how it's going to go. Um, you know, I, I felt like we are in a lot of ways the blind leading the blind around each other saying, I'm, I'm doing okay today. How are you doing? How can we help each other? Um, but just to recognize that as it's been hard for adults for a variety of reasons, um, so much of, of middle school and high school students world is around peer interaction. And so for that to be so drastically different for so long, I think has been um, tricky for all of them, even the ones, even the ones you wouldn't expect, even the ones um, maybe who haven't said it out loud yet. So they talked it all about, um, I mean, the, the, a bit of the reverse because uh, parents working at home means that they're with their parents all the time. Uh, and there's been that, 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 you know, family time. They haven't been with their, their peers, but they've, they've been with, uh, how's that gone? Uh, you know, and that's a great question. I just have no idea. I haven't even asked. Okay. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I don't, I have not, uh, that's so fascinating. I'm going to ask, I have not heard a ton about that. I haven't heard them fussing about their parents more than, you know, more than you would usually expect for kids to fuss about their parents who have the gall to have things like, you know, curfews for them and horrible, <laughs> horrible injustices like that in the lives of high school students. Um, I don't know. I'll have to ask. Parents have had to be more involved because they've had to supervise making sure their kids did the work and things. Mm -hmm. you know, there's yep. been homeschooling and all that. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I just wondering about that. Yeah. Um, well, um, when I, when I came, when I was teaching, let me, let me go back a little further. When I was teaching, I was teaching mostly through the nineties. Mm -hmm. Um, and so college kids, that was, that was when, uh, the major transition was really occurring, uh, with contemporary churches versus traditional churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that continued on once I came to, to first Baptist black mountain. Um, it was almost like we had, as you mentioned, two different churches, mm -hmm. uh, and, but, but the younger people uh, embracing the contemporary worship, wanting that, mm -hmm. um, younger adults, uh, leaving the church, seeking that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so there was the kind of explosion, um, but it's been 20 years, which means that, that the kids that, that you're dealing with now, that's all some have known, uh, mm -hmm. is, 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 is life in a contemporary church versus any kind of tradition, um, or, you know, or a traditional church. Um, but, and, and, and usually after that kind of generation, uh, they begin to, to chafe, um, at, at what I grew up with, you sure, know, sure. that was, whether it was tradition or now it's what, you know, I, I just grew up with contemporary. Mm -hmm. Are you finding any of that, uh, among kids, uh, that have just known, uh, the contemporary experience? Well, and you know what's so interesting is youth that in our congregation, our church doesn't have a contemporary worship experience. It's all traditional. And so, um, you know, their experience has been 
very, it's creative, truly creative worship, but you know, musically it's very traditional organ and choir and all those sorts of things. And they've had con more contemporary kind of band worship experiences at summer camp or, um, you know, on retreat sometimes, uh, people who are better youth leaders than I am who do play the guitar, uh, bring their guitars, you know, and things and <laughs> invite students to, to be a part of that. So, um, you know, I think there's so much, so all that to say in conversations as I've talked to um, a few youth at least who are leaving our congregation, graduating high school and headed off to college. And so one of the conversations we have is, are, you know, are how are you going to find a church? Are you interested in finding a church? How might you find a church? What are you looking for? How can you plug in? Um, is that for them, traditional worship is their largely their experience of worship. And so what feels comfortable and, and homey to them is an organ and a choir. And, you know, one student I talked to this summer, she said, there's so, I'm anticipating there'd be so much new um, at college. I'll be in a new city with a new roommate and a new way of being in the world. She's like, I just want church to feel kind of the same. I'm just looking for a church that feels like my church right now. So, um, so I, so I don't know, I, that's kind of always. Are you finding any kids from other churches that have been contemporary uh, saying, I want to try something different. So I'm coming here because I don't know anything about yeah. this experience. Yeah, interesting. Not really. I would expect that maybe happening more on a college level. You know, so much of middle school and high schoolers experience of churches is part of a family. So our family is going to all come together, look for something, um, you know, by that college and young adult age, I think that's when they're maybe got the agency to make a few more choices. Um, you know, we did do, I wasn't very involved with it, but um, our youth, uh, a couple of older youth and a, a small group of, of adults, parents primarily and volunteers, um, came up with an idea uh, that we did just before COVID. So it's kind of fall of 2019 um, called the Asheville Youth Project, Youth, no, Asheville Worship Project. Um, and we put the, we, I didn't have anything to do with it. They put the youth group um, into some small groups, four or five youth and an adult or two, um, and contacted some congregations and went and worshiped at a few other congregations around our city to say to our youth, the, the way that our church worship it, worships is really great and there's beauty in it and that's who our congregation is called to be, but also the way that a more charismatic church, for example, worships or a much more highly liturgical, you know, they went to a Episcopal service where, you know, a right one service where they just read straight, at, you know, straight down and sat through and had communion and took the sacraments with the church or a much more contemporary service where there's a coffee bar in the lobby and the, you know, lights and band and all those sorts of things. So I think that's a, that's a conversation we're very interested in having with our youth. It says the format of worship is helpful, important. I hope you'll think about it and find something that connects well with you. But ultimately the object of our worship is more important or the function of our corporate worship together as we remember that we are all Christ's body and we belong to each other. Um, that's the the real important part that we want our youth to, to engage in. So it'll be interesting to see. I think I'll have to keep an eye out um, as I'm in, as I'm here longer and, and see more and more students graduating and moving on to college and which churches uh, and what types of, of worship they connect with um, or where, or where they feel like they want to go and explore something new that's different than what they grew up with or different than, than what their parents liked. Well, as a last question, um, of those kids that are Christian, of those mm -hmm. kids that have embraced Christianity, who are you finding uh, that they're looking to? Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, who are their... Who are their spiritual mentors and heroes? Uh, what kind of music uh, do they find that connects with their spiritual mm. growth? Um, and is it local, or are yeah. they do they look international? Mm -hmm. Man, that's a great question. I don't think it's local and I don't think it's necessarily international. I think it's probably national voices uh, that youth are largely following. 
Um, and I bet you could ask a hundred youth and get 200 different answers about that. You know, that just depending on so much of that is a function of, you know, even as adults, so much of who we listen to and what music we like and what books we're reading. Some of it's just about what you like and what you don't like. And some of it is about what's been recommended to you and what are your friends talking about? You know, somebody says, I've got this great new book. We can all read this for book club next month. And then you read that book because they said it's good. So I think some of that depends on, you know, I bet youth that are in very rural areas are listening to different people, having different conversations than youth in suburban or very urban areas. Um, well, I guess I know that, um, especially for young people um, with peer pressure, you know, fashion is a good example, uh, you know, that, that fashion becomes viral. And so it becomes a, a you know, a national thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I found to some degree that the young people uh, that were in my congregation at the time, you know, uh, were influenced by that as well. You know, mm-hmm. that, that it wasn't just that fashion was what they were influenced by, but, but who, who, who were the, the leaders in spiritual experiences? Yeah. Uh, you know, they, when, when some big name would come to Asheville, they would know that mm-hmm. uh, and they would want to go. Yeah. Uh, and so I didn't know if that still was happening, especially because of the internet experiences and the social media uh if that still created that kind of fashionable peer pressure (laughs) yeah and you know i think i'm going to disagree with myself and what i just said uh and say um sometimes i think even that uh the ability to connect with people who don't live where you are geographically um you know to be able to connect on instagram or TikTok. Um, I think in a lot of ways it connects, uh, people, I don't think it's just youth, but maybe youth in this context, um, connects people to people that they wouldn't know or influences or leaders that they wouldn't necessarily know. Um, but it, it also kind of, uh, puts you into a a group of people who are like you without, um, you know, without necessarily those outside influences coming in if you were just at school and having to meet lots of different people. So, um, you know, you think about if you like this band and you listen to, you know, all of the things on TikTok that are about Harry Styles, then TikTok's going to just show you more and more people who love Harry Styles. And so then you're just going to think the whole, the whole world loves Harry Styles, which, you know, who doesn't, it's great music. I'm a big fan too. Um, but I, I wonder sometimes, you know, we talk about, I feel like particularly in the political culture or political conversation in America about how easy it is to get onto an echo chamber and just hear people that agree with you or see the way world the way that you do. Um, and I, I don't think that's just uh, in the grown up adult world. I think that's um, proliferation of, of social media is maybe ha- helping that happen for, for lots of generations. And so what does that mean um, for youth if they they just see the same sorts of voices that already agree with them or already encourage them in the way that they are. Um, I think all of us would do, do well of every generation to, to intentionally put ourselves with people who see the world a little differently or think a little differently than we do to consider that, that another way of being could be maybe just as good or better than our way of being. Well, this has been a great conversation. Good. I'm so glad. It's been and, really fun. And I'm thankful for your insights, for your experience uh, that you've given. Uh, and, and, you know, I, we're going to need to talk some more. Uh, <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, let, me, let me do a little more reading, a little more. Yeah. And we, we can talk again. Yeah, but but thank you for being here. Uh, I'm so glad to. You and the work that you do. Thanks. I'm, it's been an honor to be with you. I'm, I'm grateful for the invitation. So. Well, you've been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project 
by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your